Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It was 1853. The World's Fair opened in New York City, and people came from around the globe to see ingenuity at work. President Franklin Pierce was in attendance, and the band played Yankee Doodle Dandy. P.T. Barnum, the showman and founder of Barnum & Bailey Circus, gathered a crowd. And what he showed the audience would permanently change our buildings, our cities, and our way of life. I think there were a lot of awes and gasps as he actually demonstrated the elevator, and people thought he was going to crash. He was Elijah Otis. And as Barnum riled up the crowd, Otis stood on top of a wooden platform connected to pulleys and a wagon spring. It was a mobile elevator, all inside of a wooden frame. Otis was hoisted up 50 feet to the top of the contraption. Then he ordered the holding rope to be cut. Just use that magical stop button and he stopped. I think it was a bit jerky, but it stopped and people were really amazed. And I think it gave great confidence if the guy who invented the elevator demonstrated it. That was pretty exciting. Otis's elevator dropped just a few inches before stopping. He had invented an automatic safety brake. Now, the elevator wasn't new, but a safe elevator that didn't suddenly plunge to the floor killing riders, that was new. And it inspired confidence to build higher and higher. So the evolution of our tallest buildings, that's been driven by technology in materials and engineering. And current technology just might allow us to build even higher with one of the oldest materials, wood. So the question is, would you feel safe in a 50-story wooden skyscraper? From this old house, this is Clear Story. Your home in a new life. I'm Kevin O'Connor. Before the 1850s, the tallest buildings were five or six stories. That's about as many stairs people were willing to hoof up on their own. And because of that, real estate on the highest floors was also the cheapest. But the Otis elevator was revolutionary, safely and quickly transporting people and goods to upper floors. And those became expensive prime real estate, away from the crowds and smell of city streets. Our eyes and ambitions went skyward in taller and taller buildings. But a wooden skyscraper? You know, probably 25 years ago, I would have said no. But I think it's really exciting what's going on with wood frame construction. Lynn Osmond is the president and CEO of the Chicago Architecture Center. And she said visitors look skeptically at a miniature model of a wood skyscraper in their lobby. You're talking about people getting nervous about the elevator. When we talk about timber frame construction, we have actually a model of a timber building in our skyscraper gallery at the Chicago Architecture Center. And people look at that, they're going, I'm not going to go to the top floor of a timber frame construction because they're nervous about it. What if it burns? 
Wood got a bad rap in the very city where Lynn works and lives, Chicago. But it's also the place where the American skyscraper was born. We burned down in October of 1871. The Great Chicago Fire. You may know the story of a cow in the O'Leary's barn kicking over a lamp. Well, however it started, fire engulfed the city, killing hundreds of residents, leaving nearly 100,000 homeless and destroying 73 miles of streets and over 17,000 structures. See, Chicago was a wooden city. Its buildings and infrastructure didn't stand a chance against the fast-moving flames. But the devastating fire also laid the groundwork for a new era in building. We burned down at the right time. We had a clear plot of land that we could build tall and were surrounded by water. And so we have to really build in a very confined area in order to get that density and that creation of a city. So we're looking at building tall. It was interesting when we were building back up, it was when technology was changing. So that all of a sudden you had metal frame construction and leading to steel frame. And then you had heating and ventilation systems. You had plate glass, you had terracotta, and most importantly, you had the elevator. Lynn says our tallest buildings have always used the materials of their time. So as steel and plate glass came onto the scene, engineers and architects started incorporating them into the new fabric of the city. As Chicago rushed to rebuild, new codes required that wood construction be replaced with brick, stone, and marble. And with the rising popularity of terracotta, by the 1880s, Chicago was suddenly one of the most fireproofed cities in the country. And in 1885, the world's first skyscraper was built in Chicago. The home insurance building was 138 feet high. It's hard to think that back then 10 stories was going to be the first, but it was, and it was William LeBaron Jenny that designed it. Jenny was the architect hired to build the tall, fire-resistant building. And Lynn says he took his experience as a Civil War bridge engineer and applied it to the skyscraper. And so you think of the technology that you're using to build bridges, that you're going across a clear span, and you take that technology and very simply put it vertical instead of horizontal. So he really developed that whole idea of building tall using that same kind of thinking process that you build to build bridges. At one point, city authorities halted construction. They were worried it would topple over, all 10 stories of it. It didn't. And in 1890, two more floors were added to the top, bringing it to 180 feet. The steel frame building ushered in other new technologies like wind bracing, modern plumbing, and the elevator. And using steel had a lot of other advantages. You could build taller, you could build faster, and then also it introduced the concept of the curtain wall. So that's where your outside of your building is hung on the building rather than being part of the structure of the building how much progress was made in building technology by the skyscraper, by our desire to push the heights of these buildings up and up and up? Well, that's, you know, really progressed over the years. We did a lot of innovation right at the turn of the 20th century, where we really did a lot of techniques. They were pushing the envelope, how to build tall. 
And what I think was really important is that a lot of people came out of William LeBaron Jennings' office. And so people that started their own firms are there, and they really shared the engineering stories and shared the technique of what could happen. And so when we saw that building with metal frame construction, then progressing to steel frame, experimenting, and Chicago became a laboratory. Architects and engineers were experimenting with building higher. People like Daniel Burnham, who went on to design New York's famous Flatiron Building, and Charles Atwood. They and others were members of the Chicago School of Architecture, and they were pushing the boundaries of going higher. When you look at a building like the Reliance Building, it would look like a building that was really built today in many ways because it has these huge plate glass windows. Burnham and Atwood's Reliance Building was innovative. At 14 stories tall, it was a wall of plate glass windows and white terracotta. Its light and airy aesthetic was a break from the past, and people described it as defying gravity. And in 1893, Chicago hosted the World's Fair. You had people actually coming to see the skyscrapers. We had 12 skyscrapers. You'd take a taxi cab, you'd look up, you had to see them. And so there was this fascination about the density of these skyscrapers. And what, again, was interesting at that time is that Well, New York was certainly building tall. We had taller happening in Chicago, and we had them closer together, more density. So it was almost like our forest of skyscrapers, which was so new to people and very exciting. So it was the first tourist trap was here in Chicago, and it was our skyscrapers. Daniel Burnham and his fellow Chicago architects were instrumental in designing the fair. In addition to the city's skyscrapers, they set out to build an attraction for visitors— one that would rival the tallest structure at the time, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. The Eiffel Tower was completed in 1889, and it was nearly 1,000 feet tall. By the way, that was also designed by a bridge engineer. Back in Chicago, Daniel Burnham turned to a different engineer, this time one experienced in railroads, His name was William Ferris. William Ferris came in with an idea about building a Ferris wheel. And people thought, you know, can we do this? It became the icon for the World's Fair. It was built out of steel. So when you look at this thing, it was 53,000 pounds, and it had 36 cars and 40 revolving chairs accommodating 60 people, and total capacity of over 2,000. The Ferris wheel was 250 feet in diameter, taller than any building in Chicago. It had an axle that weighed nearly 90,000 pounds and was braced by two towers 140 feet in the air. Visitors were awed and 1.4 million of them went for a ride on this engineering feat. Think of that, that back in 1893, that you could actually have that many people participating in a ride. And so we talk about being afraid with Otis in the elevator. This was really quite a feat in itself, too. And at 264 feet, it towers over everything that Burnham has laid out for the World's Fair. And and this idea of a dining car going around with 20-so other people, you are literally 
dining above the entire city of Chicago. Like that was their goal. That's how they were going to wow the masses. What does that say that they had to go up and tall and high? Well, I think that started really started the whole engineering feat for the city to go even taller, 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 tallest. And that became the mantra for the city. 27 million people came to the fair. Just think about that in 1893. And they had never seen a city that clean, that white, that brilliant, uh, so well laid out, clean water, clean bathrooms, all part of this fair. And then you could get above it and see the lake, see the fair, and see those skyscrapers of downtown Chicago. Do you think those 27 million people had ever seen anything as tall as the Ferris wheel? They absolutely would not have ever seen anything as tall as the Ferris wheel. And that's what made it so spectacular. At that point, the world was in a race to build taller and taller, and new technology and materials were making that possible. But today, there's a new race. To build with materials that meet the demands of our rapidly expanding cities, but that are also sustainable. And the original material that was abandoned for concrete and glass, well, that might just be the solution. That's after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think there's something biological about our connection with wood as a material. We as a species grew up around all these natural materials. And, you know, I think it's it's somehow deeply baked in our DNA to love natural materials. Michael Green is an architect in Vancouver. And his firm, Michael Green Architecture, is on the forefront of building with big wood. Wood for me personally is a connection to my grandfather. It's a connection to to family and a history of working with wood since I was a young kid. What's the connection to your grandfather? My, my grandpa was a historian, but he was a woodworker. The quality time I got to spend with him was sitting in his shop and him picking up different pieces of wood and showing me different characters of wood. <laughs> so I totally get that, but why not keep it to the furniture and the chairs and a hand tool? What, what are you thinking with a 30-story building out of wood? <laughs> right, and even bigger now. So, you know... The, the story for me is interesting. I, I, I graduated architecture school and, you know, we did not talk about wood in architecture school at all. And then I ended up working for this really famous architect doing literally the tallest buildings on earth. I worked for a guy named Caesar Pelli and we built the, at the time, the Petronas Towers, which is the twin towers with the bridge between them in Malaysia that were the tallest buildings in the world. And of course they were made in steel and concrete. At roughly 1,483 feet, the Petronas Towers are the tallest twin buildings in the world. They each have 88 stories with an additional five stories underground for parking and mechanicals. They sort of look like stainless steel rockets connected by a bridge. That was the only way you could build big buildings. And there was something that just personally didn't connect and resonate for me. When I moved home to, to Canada, to Western Canada, to British Columbia, which is a land of huge trees, 
you know, I sort of started reconnecting the dots between wood, this material I love so much, and its natural qualities, and what we needed to start building in cities with. What do you mean steel and concrete were the only ways we could build these big buildings? Well, so if you think about it, since the Industrial Revolution, the way we have built big buildings has always been in steel and concrete. That's, you know, those two materials took over from wood and brick and some of the other materials for building large buildings and cities about a century and a half ago. And it happened because there were these big city fires that were happening, you know, San Francisco and Chicago and New York. And for a century and a half, that's the way we've built big buildings until now. And that's changing. Although it was a pretty good idea. I mean, they went up fast and they're strong and they can hold a lot of weight and they're pretty stiff. And as you look around the city skyline, it works. (laughs) Why are you trying to mess with it? Absolutely. So everything worked, except we forgot one really important thing, which is the impact on the environment and worse yet, climate. What we didn't really understand is that steel and concrete have huge energy footprints and huge carbon footprints. And today, the conversation is about the future and climate change and what are we going to do to actually slow it? You know, in North America, it's almost half of climate impact comes from the making and operating buildings. And steel and concrete are a big part of the reason that we have a problem. And why isn't cutting down a million trees to build a skyscraper just as bad when it comes to the carbon equation? Excellent question. So... The first thing is trees are always growing. So cutting down trees and not replanting trees would be a terrible idea. Cutting down the wrong trees would be a terrible idea. But there is a concept of sustainable forestry that's really possible. You know, the beauty of using trees and wood is that when a tree is growing, it's giving us oxygen, it's soaking up carbon dioxide. When you cut down that tree and take the wood products and put it into a piece of furniture or a building, You're basically storing, you're locking that carbon into the building for the life of the building until it rots or burns. And wood is the only material, major material, that I can choose as an architect to build with that does both those two things. Storing carbon and it's reducing carbon by offsetting alternative high carbon materials like steel and concrete. So I don't have any problem with attacking the carbon footprint problem with this change from one material to another, steel and concrete to say wood. But I do want my building to stand up tall and straight and I don't want it to burn. So are you solving the wrong problem? Yeah, so those are really good problems to solve. And what's interesting is wood is incredibly strong relative to its weight. And so what we're doing is instead of cutting down, as we might have a century ago, large trees to make these large beams and columns, we're we're cutting down smaller trees, gluing them together as engineered wood products, making them very, very strong, very, very durable, very resilient to earthquakes. And we're able to create the strength we need to build buildings that are as strong as concrete and steel buildings effectively. They just happen to weigh a lot less. So that's part of the formula. The other part of the formula is fire. After catastrophic fires in places like Chicago and San Francisco, we basically abandoned wood structures because they created an urban tinderbox. But Michael says the new engineered wood timber, well, it's different. And it's safe. But I think what's important for the listener to understand and reflect on is if I handed you a big log and and a lighter and said, could you light this log on fire? You probably know enough about it that it doesn't light on fire. It's because it's massive. 
you know that you need small pieces of wood to light something on fire. The concept of these buildings is the same. We're using massive wood, which means it doesn't light on fire very easily. And if it did light on fire, it actually burns very predictably and slowly, just like a giant log in the fire doesn't instantly burn. Hang on a second. I get the whole massive wood doesn't burn and massive wood is going to be strong enough to hold up our buildings, but you just said you're making the massive wood out of little pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Are you cobbling together toothpicks and, and matches to make these materials? There's different types of products. So we call the family of materials mass timber. And that's a grouping of different types of products. Many of these are products that, you know, you could buy at your local hardware store that, you, you know, people will recognize. Um, some are not. So we have glue laminated beams and columns that are taking, you know, dimensional lumber, two by sixes and gluing them together. And then we have panel products, the big one being what's called cross laminated timber, which is basically taking two by sixes, laying them down side by side laying a layer of glue and laying a new layer at 90 degrees and then another layer at 90 degrees like jumbo, jumbo plywood. And we can make panels that are 60 feet long and 12 feet wide and a foot thick by building up the panels with all this smaller scale wood. So once glued together, it's very strong. And what does that do for you as an architect when you're no longer relegated to two by fours or two by tens? What can you do with a 20 foot, 60 foot panel? Yeah, it's game changing. One is the scale of what we can build, the strength of what we can build with, the speed with which we can build. You know, you're building with an enormous slab that comes to site to be erected very, very quickly. The character of the building changes. Now we're seeing all this beautiful wood that's actually the structure. It's not decorative. It's actually there as part of the necessity of the structure and the durability of the building. What happens when we take small pieces of wood and we cross them to each other and we laminate them to each other? What's going on from a physics standpoint? Yeah, so, you know, wood is fiber. The character of a piece of wood is it's like a series of straws all sort of bundled together going in a single direction. When you take different pieces of wood and glue them together across directions, what you're doing is taking all those fibers and kind of reconstituting them in different directions, meaning that they structurally have more diverse characteristics and properties so that allows you to create a much stronger ultimate product. You're on record as saying, quote, wood is the most technologically advanced material to build with. <laughs> yeah. That's a bold statement coming after the age of stone, the age of steel, the age of concrete. Yeah. How do you defend that? Yeah, it's pretty easy. I, the, the, the way I complete that sentence is that the problem is man didn't invent it, so we're not comfortable with the fact that Mother Nature holds the patent on it, and we just have to check our ego at the door about it. We'll go back to the future after the break. There's something very crude about the way we build with wood today. We take a tree and we chop it into a block of wood that's rectilinear. Architect Michael Green says the future of building and building big is with wood. And he says nature holds the key for how to do it. But if you look at the structural characteristics of a beam or a branch, where the strength needs to be, where the mass of the material needs to be, is not in this rectilinear form. 
it's actually in something much more like the shape of the branch. And so, you know, we can quickly analyze the character of, of a branch or a beam and really understand just that, is that the fiber alignment is actually the answer of how nature has made that strength more possible. The strength is also pretty clear. We know what the compressive strength is of wood and we know what the tensile strength of wood is and different kinds of woods behave differently. And so we can analyze all those things to be able to understand how once glued together, how strong they can be. And then we break stuff. We test it and break it and, and see how it behaves, burn it, do all those things. And so those characteristics that you mentioned, the, um, the grain, the natural patterns of the wood, on a, on a home building job site, we know them as wood that warps and twists, that curves, that has a crown. And those are pejoratives. Those aren't things we like. Wood is weird. Wood is squirrely. It does all things that you can't predict. Why are you smiling when you're using this material that's so unpredictable? And, and how do you tame it? These big buildings are using very dry wood, very stable wood, very strong wood, and very engineered wood which is just quite different than what we're thinking about when we first think about building a house. When we talk about a residential project, we're talking about small-scale wood numbers, two-by-fours, two-by-sixes, and whatnot. We typically are using wood that can be 18 19% moisture content. When we build these bigger buildings, these engineered wood products, we actually reduce that down to 12 to 14%, which is much closer to the relative humidity of our homes. And what that means is the wood is much, much less likely to warp or twist. And by gluing it together, we're actually creating that strength that will resist those changes that you see in lightweight wood construction. It's probably safe to assume that they're not reaching those low moisture content uh, by stacking them on sticks and letting them air dry. Aren't they putting them into giant kilns, using a ton of energy to create a lot of heat to dry them out, either rapidly or to very low levels? And why is it any different than the heat intensity that you mentioned uh, that we use for steel and concrete? So it depends where we are and who we're talking about. But the best systems are the systems that we see in Central Europe, where you have complete circular economies of this process. So the folks that own the forest will cut the trees, take them to the mill, mill the wood, use the sawdust and the waste product of that to heat the kiln, to dry the wood, to put it into the manufacturing plant, will actually generate the energy off of the heating system to be able to generate the energy to power the manufacturing process to make the products to ultimately sell. And actually will often heat and power the entire community that these forestry companies are in. That's the ideal. But, you know, forgive the skepticism. I also can see a situation where we get these mass timber products by clear-cutting forests and heating them rapidly and drying them quickly with coal-fired furnaces, and we do it all wrong, and you get what you want, and we end up with all the same problems or similar problems that we had with the other materials. So that would definitely not get me what I want. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my motivation remains that we have to do this in a way that is sensitive to climate and energy and environment. To do this well, you have to think well beyond the building industry and into the forestry and, and environmental industry to understand how to do it well. There are good models. There are models of forestry that work. And, you know, currently the North American forest is actually able to provide enough wood to do this. 
Can you give me a sense of how much wood the North American forest can provide for us? Is there really enough? So I have a good statistic that I like to reference. So the first, what we call tall wood building that was built in North America is one that we designed in Northern British Columbia. It's not very tall, it's about 100 feet tall. It's an entirely wood building, good size building. And we calculated that the North American forest grows enough wood every four minutes to build that building. Oh, that's a yeah. lot of wood. <laughs> yeah. You know, I always say the hardest part of my job isn't the engineering, it's the shifting of the public's perception of what's possible. Okay, so what's possible? So there's a lot of really great projects being built around North America. There's a 20-story project in Wisconsin that's under construction. There's an 18-story building in British Columbia that's already been built. Is that the breakthrough? The, the mass timber technology? Is that the thing that changed the game? Yeah, you know what's funny is often I think it's a back-to-the-future story. Feels like it. There are buildings, you know, in Vancouver where I live in British Columbia, there's a building that's nine stories tall made of mass timber that was built just after 1900. And, you know, it stood in an earthquake zone for a century and a bit in a place that only allowed six-story buildings. And here's this nine-story building that already exists. Somehow we forgot what we could do. And now, of course, we just have better products. We have more engineering understanding. We have more analyst analytics on fire. So really, it's a back-to-the-future story. So what does a big wood building look like? Well, Michael says you might be surprised. From the outside, his buildings often look like any other large structure in a city. That's because he doesn't generally put wood on the outside, for fire reasons. But inside, everything changes. And this is what gets really interesting, is that a wood building, when you're surrounded by wood or any other natural material, we know that the research tells us that people feel less stress when surrounded by wood or in other natural materials. And they feel less stress when they can see nature outside a window. But when you feel less stress in one of these wood buildings, what we find is that people heal quicker, people learn faster, people work more productively, people have less days off from sickness and so forth. Inside, wood is everywhere. Stairs, walls, ceilings, and floors. He's designed wood airports, universities, office buildings, and city halls. And so we're working with some amazing Silicon Valley companies building some big buildings for them right now, you know, that we don't yet publicly talk about. But what we're excited about is that they're recognizing that productivity changes and the quality of work changes when you're surrounded by natural materials and that wood buildings are part of a formula for them, both from an air quality point of view, from a climate point of view, and even a productivity point of view, they think that's the way to go. And, and when you say big, how big are we talking you know, we have buildings, three, 400,000 square foot buildings now built in wood. They're not necessarily tall, but they're they're large. Um, I just got off the phone with folks wanting me to do a half million square foot building in wood. Um, these are pretty huge buildings in wood now. And when will we get or will we ever get a wooden Empire State Building? Will we ever get 110 stories made out of wood? You know, I, I don't know. And I, I have, I'm going to be honest, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I'm this... You know, I've become a sort of champion of the tall wood building movement. But I also believe that there's a point where tall buildings themselves are not actually the solution. And they, you know, tall buildings, no matter what they're made of, become a way of disconnecting us socially and, and not creating strong communities. And so for me, ironically, there's a point where tall is not the answer. Um, and, you know, I think we need a lot of buildings between you know, nine stories and 18 stories, but do we need a lot of 100? I'm not sure. The benefit of, of one at that scale 
is that the moment we build that big, no one will ever doubt the possibility ever again. And that matters. That's a good point. Once you see something that big and you realize it can be done, it'll change a lot of minds. Yep. And, you know, I, I often talk about how the first skyscraper ever built was built in Chicago at 10 stories tall in wrought iron. And people were afraid to walk underneath it. The concept of a building that big was just terrifying to people. And of course, that's just laughable to think about today. But that's what public perception is all about. We've come a long way since skyscrapers were just 10 stories high. Today, the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's a towering 2,700 feet high with 160 stories and an aluminum and glass facade. And Elijah Otis, well, he'd be proud. It also has the tallest service elevator in the world. Oh, and it was designed by Chicago architects. But as Michael Green says, the future of big construction might be defined by other things, not just height. As our global needs for housing and urban expansion grow, there's more pressure to build with sustainable materials. So going big with wood just might be the future. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. And if you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced for This Old House by Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch. Production support from James Trout, Andrea Suahe, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And special thanks to our guests, Lynn Osman and Michael Green. Oh, and if you want to learn more about the O'Leary's cow and the Great Chicago Fire, go check out episode two of season one of Clear Story. You'll learn about more ways that fire fundamentally changed the way we built. I'm Kevin O'Connor. Plenty more next week. You're an architect, so I know that's not your only dream. Do you have a dream building in your head that you haven't built yet? Yeah, my wood shop. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew it was gonna, I knew that was going to be your answer. I knew the guy who's building the tallest wood structures out there with your grandfather's story just wants a little wood shop in the backyard. Check out the latest This Old House episodes on your local PBS station and on the Roku channel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for more from our home improvement experts. Sign up for our email newsletter at thisoldhouse.com.